You know, one of the things that will help you to realize how much you appreciate something is when you don't have it for a bit. So um, my wife came in here a minute ago and said, we have water. And I was like, oh, it, it, it just... It just sounded so good that we had water here again. So, anyway, so uh, anybody that keeps track of things knows that it wouldn't technically be my turn to be up here this morning. But as it turns out, um, I guess it would be actually be Warren's turn, but it turns out that Delvin and I and Dennis will all be gone next Sunday. And so had Warren preached this Sunday, he would have had to preach next Sunday as well, and and Dennis suggested that perhaps I could share the topic that I'll be sharing at Midwest meetings today here um, uh, and give Warren a break in the in kind of the uh, uh, by doing that so I, I decided to do that but I hope you're not disappointed I decided I'm not going to today share the topic that I will be sharing next Sunday at Midwest meetings uh, instead um, I'm going to give you the long version of that topic. I, I was frustrated as I was re- preparing that topic that there was no way I was going to be able to get everything said that I would have liked to have said, and uh, I had to take the editorial knife to it pretty hard to, to pare out something that would fit into about 50 minutes. And I decided that I'm not going to do that here. I can, I can continue this thing out over several Sundays over the next while. And so I plan to do that. And today I plan to set the foundation for um, the topics I plan to talk on in the next little bit. And just so you know, the the topic I'm going to be sharing on next uh, week at Midwest Meetings is uh, basically an overview of 20th century, um, uh, the history of 20th century Mennonitism, I guess I'll call it it that, kind of the... the, um, uh, the ebb and the flow and some of the history and some of the things we can learn from that. And I'm going to broaden that in this series to uh, include, and, and what we're going to look at today is, what indeed is true religion? You know, the, the, James talks about true religion, you know. And, uh, and so I'd like, to, uh, I'd like to look at that. And in the New Testament, it, it calls this, this religion that we hold to it, it, it refers to it as our faith. Um, and just if you would just pull up a, um, a commentary and just look at that, or I'm sorry, like a concordance, and look at the word faith in the New Testament, you would come across phrases like this. It calls us to continue in the faith, to be established in the faith, to be obedient to the faith, to embrace the righteousness of the faith, to stand fast in the faith, to be justified by the faith, to have the unity of the faith, to strive together for the faith, to have boldness in the faith, to be sound in the faith. And it warns us, in the latter times, some shall depart from the faith, and thus Jude admonishes us to earnestly contend for the faith. And so I'd just like to look at our faith. What, what is our faith? What is the essence of true religion? How do we hold fast to this faith that we are called to hold on to? For a springboard, turn with me to Hebrews 10, and this will be, like I say, our springboard, and then we'll end up in John 17 um, a little bit later on. Well, let's just look at Hebrews 10 just real quick here to start out. 
And if you look at uh, verse uh, Hebrews 10, verse 16, here we go. We talk about this covenant. And, of course, we know that Hebrew writers talking about how the new covenant was so much better than the old covenant. And uh, so I'm going to read uh, 16 through 27 here once. It says, This is the covenant that I will make with them after those days, saith the Lord. I will put my law in their hearts and in their minds will I write them. And their sins and iniquities will I remember no more. Now, where remission of, of these is, there is no more offering for sin. Having, therefore, brethren, boldness to enter into the holiest by the blood of Jesus, by a new and living way, which he hath consecrated for us through the veil, that is to say, his flesh, and having an high priest over the house of God, let us draw near with a true heart and full assurance of faith, having your hearts sprinkled from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. Let us hold fast to the profession of our faith without wavering, for he is faithful that promised. And let us consider one another to provoke unto love and to good works, not forsaking the assembling of ourselves together, as the manner of some is, but exhorting one another, and so much the more as you see the day approaching. For if we sin willfully after that we have received the knowledge of the truth, there remaineth no more sacrifice for sins, but a certain fearful looking for of judgment and fiery indignation, which shall be devour the adversaries. Now let's jump down to verse 31. It is a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God, but call to remembrance the former days in which after ye were illuminated ye endured a great fight of afflictions, partly whilst you were made a gazing stock both by reproaches and afflictions, and partly whilst you became companions of those of them that were so used. For ye had compassion of me and my bonds, and took joyfully the spoiling of your goods, knowing in yourselves that ye have in heaven a better and an enduring substance. Cast not away, therefore, your confidence, which hath great recompense of reward. For ye have need of patience, that after ye have done the will of God, ye might receive the promise. For yet a little while, and he that shall come will come, and will not tarry. Now the just shall live by faith. If any man draw back, my soul shall have no pleasure in him. But we are not of them that draw back unto perdition, but of them that believe to the saving of the soul. I would like to just go through this passage just real briefly and look at why the Hebrew writer is holding forth this plea to hold to the faith. In a nutshell, verses 16 to 18, I think, describe the new covenant. Why the Hebrew writer was so excited. This thing is new because it's right inside us. We don't have this law on stones anymore. It's it's right inside of us. And so in verse 22, he, he puts forth this plea. He says, draw near with a true heart. Have full assurance. Remember, this new covenant really works. Fully embrace it. Don't be skeptical. Don't waffle between the old and the new. Take the new and run with it. Have full confidence. Draw near. And then in verse 23, hold fast. The very, the very fact that the Hebrew writer encourages his audience to hold fast implies that there is a possibility that we would have the temptation not to hold fast. That we could 
it could be lost, or we could uh, render it as untrustworthy. Verse 24, be a committed advocate of the faith. Inspire others. Provoke others to good works, it says. Verse 25, take part in continuing education and exhortation and inspiration. Make sure that whenever the Word of God is open and being taught and preached, that you're there and you're taking it in. Don't forsake the assembling of yourselves together, it says. Verse 33 and 34, completely identify with the family of God and the reproach that goes with that family. He says, uh, you, you identify with me, and uh, he said, uh, that's a good thing. Make sure you identify with God's family. Verse 35, he says, don't cast away your confidence. When you have confidence in something, you are, you are, you have somehow been um, convinced that this particular product or way of doing things is the way. You are confident it will work. You can probably think of something in your life that you plan to place full confidence in and you would be hard-pressed to be convinced otherwise. He's making the point here that this faith is something that we should be confident of. And then in verse 39, he sums it up and he says, if you draw back, if you leave this new covenant, you do it to your own destruction. All right. So we're talking about this faith, this new covenant. Unfortunately, in the world we live in today, faith has become a word that can mean just about anything you want it to mean. You can profess to have faith as a Muslim, a Buddhist, a Jew, a Mormon, a JW, a Lutheran, a Catholic, an Indian tribal religion, or some Eastern mysticism, or just about anything you want it to mean. To be true to oneself has become the watchword of the day. Just be true to yourself. Just be true to your religion. Tolerance and inclusion, it seems, has become the newest, latest, and most desirable virtue that one can possess in our current culture. An offense to anybody has become one of the gravest sins. And on the face that seems so right, but if you follow it to the bitter end, you will find that it's always an acquiescence and a giving up of truth and an abandonment of the faith. Let me give you an example of what I'm talking about. In North Carolina, in January of 2015, there was a college down there that was founded on Christian principles that decided that in, in the name of inclusion and tolerance, they were going to begin to broadcast the traditional Muslim prayer call from the bell tower of the chapel. And at that point, Muslim students could uh, hold public prayer in the college chapel basement every Friday at 1 o'clock. Sounds like a reasonable thing, not? Well, there was a problem. Suddenly, it was the Muslims that were in the, high, in the spotlight and were lifted up as um, special, and suddenly they heard an outcry from the Jews and the Christians. Um, why weren't uh, the Jewish calls to prayer being broadcast from the bell tower? Uh, and w or why wasn't the Lord's Prayer being, being read on a different day? The real root of the issue was that uh, it wasn't about inclusion and tolerance, but it was about suppressing 
the true faith in the name of inclusion and tolerance. And so, after enough public outcry, the college reversed the decision. You may have heard this tagline, <clears throat> I think it's an interesting one, from St. Luke's Episcopal Church in Rochester. It puts it this way, We are committed to welcoming worshipers without discrimination wherever they are on their faith's journey. Think about that. There seems to me that when, when I hear that, there's an echo that comes back and says, we pay no attention to what the Bible says about true faith, the way to God, or sin. Come bring your baggage with you. We'll look the other way, and we'll all look, live happily ever after. I want to be careful that, I don't, that I'm not judgmental here, but what I'm trying to point out, folks, in the name of inclusion and tolerance, what it really is, is a suppressing of the true faith. And that shouldn't surprise us. That has, been, that has been the goal of Satan forever. To just put enough spin on the wrong thing to give it a good face and then say it's all good. If one chooses to say there's only one way, oftentimes he will be deemed a bigot. The definition of a bigot is this, a person who is obstinately or intolerantly devoted to his or her own opinions and prejudices, especially one who regards or treats the members of a group, of another group, with hatred and intolerance. So I ask you, are we bigots by saying there's one way? Are we bigots? I'm going to su suggest to you that we are not. Because, number one, it's never right to treat anybody with hatred or intolerance, no matter what religion they espouse to. It's never right. The Christian faith does not espouse to hating or treating anyone with hatred or intolerance. The other thing I would just hold forth is that we are not devoted to our own opinions. We are devoted to the Word of God. And if the Word of God and being devoted to that makes me exclusive... What am I to say? What are the foundation am I to stand on? Jesus experienced some of this in his home country of Galilee, where people, despite his wisdom and miracles, looked at him sideways and said, what's up with him? He's just a homeboy like the rest of us. Don't we know his mother and his brothers and his father? And it says they were offended with him. Another time, after a very pointed rebuke from Jesus about some of the obvious deviations from truth of the Pharisees, the disciples came to Jesus and they said this, Knowest thou that the Pharisees were offended? Don't you know you offended people that you were talking to? Jesus says in Matthew 10, he says, And you should be hated of all men for my sake, but he that endureth to the end shall be saved. It is enough for the disciple that he be called his master and that the servant as his Lord. If they have called the master of the house Beelzebub, how much more shall they call them of his household? The bottom line is, if you espouse to the true faith, you will to a certain degree be ostracized as offensive and um, intolerant. It's, it goes with the territory. 
The Bible is clear that there is a faith that is exclusive, real, and genuine. Let me read you several verses. Ephesians 4 says, There is one body and one spirit, even as you are called in one hope of your calling, one Lord, one faith, one baptism. Does it get any clearer than that? There's one. Just one. In Hebrews 12, the Hebrew writer says, Looking unto Jesus, who is the author and the finisher of our faith. There's just one author and there's just one finisher. There's no other, there's nobody else included here. It's just one. James talks about the faith of our Lord Jesus Christ. In other words, he's saying, look at the Lord Jesus. That's your faith. That's what it is. And Paul, when writing to the Ephesians, he says, After I heard of your faith in the Lord Jesus Christ and the love unto all saints, cease not to give thanks for you, making mention of you in my prayers daily. Your faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. It is important that the faith of Jesus and in Jesus is the only faith that counts. It is. Now, I want to just interject here that there's no reason we need to be arrogant about that. We can say that without arrogance. We can say that in all humility. But neither do we have to be apologetic for it. Because it is, indeed, after all, according to the Bible, the truth. We invite anybody and everybody to, a, to a, join this faith, but we dare not force anybody. It is done of free will. The faith of Jesus Christ is totally a free will. You are not born physically into the family of God. You will make that decision someday. And I'd also like to say this. The faith of Jesus is more than just Mennonite. I think that's no news to you. But I would also say it includes Mennonites, okay? And I want to explain that a little bit. It seems like on the periphery of the demographics that we, um, that we uh, fellowship with, it seems like there's two camps. It seems like you have one camp over here on this one side that says Mennonites can do no wrong. Everything they do is exactly right. They got it down pat, it's right. That's one extreme. On the other extreme, it seems like you have a group that says, Mennonites can't do anything right. And it seems like their main joy is to pick out all the things we do wrong. Okay? I don't see that there's a whole lot of uh, merit in that either. Folks, the truth is somewhere in between. Somewhere in between. So neither do I want to espouse the Anabaptist faith, the way we practice it, as the only way or as a terrible way, and one that needs much correction. I just want to interject that. The Bible says the Lord knows those that are His. Okay? That's going to include us in this audience, but it's going to include people in other audiences too. Alright, so now I would like to turn you to John 17 for the remainder of this time. And the reason I chose this chapter is, well, several reasons. Um, and one reason is, is I've been somewhat in John for the last while. And if you were told to pick out one chapter in the Bible, that would be the essence of, um, 
of Christianity. I wonder which one you'd turn to. There would be several that would probably work. I would say uh, the Sermon on the Mount, indeed, could almost be deemed the, the Christian manifesto, I would say. But if there's one thing about John 17 that I like, it's a prayer. It's Jesus' prayer, um, a prayer that we have recorded uh, by Jesus. And he it seems like he's pouring out his deepest feelings. Think about it whenever um, you're praying. You generally pray for the things, or, or maybe you don't, but I, I guess I do. I generally pray for the things that seem beyond my control or, or I, I'm, I'm, I'm burdened about. And so those are the things I tend to, to pray about. And I think that if, as we pick, on, pick up on some of the things that Jesus is talking about here in John 17, I think we see the, the burden of Jesus' heart here. The things he's concerned about that his, uh, his spiritual posterity will face as they, as they um, um, embrace this faith that he has outlined and discipled or showed to them uh, during these three or four years here on earth. So what I'm going to do here is I'm not going to read the chapter, but I'm going to go through the chapter and I'm going to pick out some things that, um, that describe this faith that are maybe special challenges to the faith of Jesus. Verse 2 is, the, um, is what I would call kind of the bedrock of the faith. This faith will make a vile sinner clean. Jesus has power over all flesh and the ability to give eternal life to any who will receive it. Several other verses that uh, back this up in John 6. It says, All that the Father giveth me shall come to me, and him that cometh to me I will in no wise cast out. That means that any one of you, or me, or anybody else in this entire world that comes to the Father and says, I want to serve you through Jesus' blood, I, I claim redemption, and I will serve you with my whole heart. It says God will in no wise cast that person out. God is not like a company CEO who looks at resumes and he picks through resumes and he says, will this guy serve me, will he not? God will give everyone a chance. He does not look at skills, education, character, work ethic, and on and on and on. He says, if this person is committed to me, I will be committed to him. 1 Peter 1 says, According as his divine power hath given us all things that pertain unto life and godliness, through the knowledge of him that has called us to virtue, to glory and virtue. John 1, but as many as received him, to them gave he power to become the sons of God. Never think that there's not room for you in God's kingdom. There is. There certainly is. All right? Number two. The world and those of faith in Jesus, those of the faith in Jesus, are in no wise alike. So in other words, over here we have the world, and over here we have those that are espousing to the faith of Jesus. Let's look at some of the verses here in John 17. Verse 6, I have manifested thy name unto the men which thou gavest me out of the world. So at one point we were in the world, but now we're out of the world. Okay? Verse 11. And now I am no more in the world, but these are in the world, and I come to thee. Holy Father, keep through thine own name those which thou hast given me, 
that they may be one as we are. So while we're out of the world, we're still here. We're still, our existence is still in the world. And the only way we're going to be kept out of the world while we're in the world is through his name. Verse 14, I have given them thy word, and the world hath hated them, because they are not of the world, even as I am not of the world. Verse 16, they are not of the world, even as I am not of the world. Now, how many times, that's four times in this chapter that Jesus emphasizes over and over as he's praying to his father that these people are not of the world. They are different. The world's here. They're over here. John picks up in his uh, epistle and he describes the world in a very, very familiar verse. You, you all know this, word, this verse. But it says, love not the world, neither the things that are in the world. If any man love the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For all that is in the world, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life, is not of the Father, but is of the world. Let's just briefly look at uh, these three things, these three categories that John says describe or define the world. Lust of the flesh. Um, I'm not going to linger long on these, but I think Mark 4.19 uh, probably sums up perhaps the lust of the flesh as well as, as any verse. It says, In the cares of this world, the deceitfulness of riches and the lust of other things come in, choke the word, and it becomes unfruitful. Whenever we have lust, we have a longing or a desire for things that, although may be legitimate, can easily get out of hand and enter into the realm of worldly. When we step over the line of enough to the line of indulgence, that's worldly. How about the lust of the eyes? Matthew 5.28 says, But I say unto you that whosoever looketh on a woman to lust after her hath committed adultery already with her in his heart. Perhaps this is more of a male-based thing, but I want to say I think no matter if you're male or female here today, you can sin with your eyes. You can, you can lust with your eyes. You know, it's one thing to want to look becoming, but is it right to try to look attractive, okay? Is it, is it, is it okay to appeal to the eye gate more than what we should. Let's be careful with the lust of our eyes. It's part of the world. You know, I had to think of this. um, The the evolution of the Internet, with all its wonderful things that it can bring to us and can be used, there is so much that that is ungodly and downright satanic that I think this whole thing of lust of the eyes has just been broadened and blown up to a greater dimension because of that particular um, that particular thing. So let's be very careful. Pride of life. As I studied this thing of the pride of life, it was interesting to me that the word pride can carry the idea of self-confidence. And the term life can carry the idea of your means of livelihood. When you put those two things together, suddenly you have a new dimension to the pride of life. Self-confidence 
in our livelihood, or pride in what we on the, in the things we do. You know, pride is a very subtle thing, and it can grab us in very unsuspecting ways. But let's 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 measure what is the what is the motivation for anything that I do, even down to our very livelihood. Do we take pride in that? It's a worldly thing. All right, let's move on. Another thing in in here in chapter 17, the embracers of this faith must maintain supernatural unity as one body. Let's look at these verses again. Verse 11, Holy Father, keep through thy name those who thou hast given me, that they may be one as we are one. This verse seems to link a vital connection between God and the experience of unity. Um, If we're not connected to God, there's a very, very good chance that we're not experiencing unity or oneness as, as we should be. Verse 21, that they may all be one as thou, Father, art in me and I in thee, and that they may also be one in us, and that the world may believe that thou hast sent me. Did you ever think about how this oneness in the body of Christ is actually such a huge witness to the world? And the lack of oneness is a huge blight on our witnessing and brings defamation to God. Verse 22, And the glory which thou gavest me I have given them, that they may be one, even as we are one. Actually, it it seems in this verse that it brings out that unity is a testament that we are indeed recipients of the glory of God. Verse 23, I and them, and thou and me, that they may be perfect, made perfect in one, and that the world may know that thou hast sent me and hast loved them. And that thou hast loved me. Again, just that, that uh, emphasis on the oneness. And again, four verses, four different times, Jesus emphasizes this in this chapter. And of course, there's many, many other verses that um, go along this line. I'll read you a few. Romans 12. So we being many are one body in Christ. 1 Corinthians 12. For as the body is one and has many members, and all members of that one body, being many are one body, so also is Christ. 1 Corinthians 12.20 But now they are many members, yet one body. And on and on it goes. Colossians 3.15 It says, Let the peace of God rule in your hearts, through the which you are called in one body, and be thankful. Think about the power and efficiency of many members working in a common goal. That's no secret. That's actually a, a must if, if anything of value is going to be accomplished. You know, yesterday I was um, out with my tractor, was it the day before? I have a little 300 International with a sidebar bar sickle mower that I used to mow under my fences all around my farm to keep the trees and whatever growing up. And I'm going along this fence, and um, ants have figured out that this is kind of fallow ground, and so they have these huge uh, anthills built, you know, along the way there. And I hit a couple of them. And my boys were with me, and and when we hit those, I mean, there was ants everywhere. They were grabbing eggs. They were going hither and thither, and it looked like mass chaos. But but they certainly had one goal in mind, and that was to get those eggs to a place of safety as fast as they possibly could. And I had to think of that as I was thinking of this oneness. Those ants were working for one goal. They had one thing in mind, and it was not their own hide, it was getting those eggs to safety. Can can we take a lesson from ants here? 
Can we? Can we work in, in unity for a common goal? Can we do that? I think we can. I think it's possible. All right. What's another, another thing here we can find in this chapter? The embracers of the faith receive God's word as, as truth and are sanctified by it. Verse 6, I have manifested thy name unto all men which thou gavest me out of the world. Thine they were, and thou gavest them me, and they have kept thy word. Now that word kept there, if you would look it up in a, uh, a concordance, means to guard from injury or loss, to keep pristine. Is that what we're doing? Are we keeping the word of God free from injury and loss, keeping it in its pristine original form? Are we doing that? Can we say that we are? <clears throat> Verse 8. For I have given unto them the words which thou givest me, and they have received them, and have known surely that I have come from thee, and they have believed that thou didst send me. Verse 17. Sanctify them through thy word. Thy word is truth. In Luke 11, there's an interesting account where certain women... Um, there was a certain woman there that says it lifted up her voice and said, Blessed is the womb that bare thee and the paps which thou hast sucked. But Jesus turned around and said, Yea, rather, blessed are they that hear the word of God and keep it. Those are the ones that are blessed. John eight thirty one. Then said Jesus unto the Jews which believed on him, If you continue in my word, then you are my disciples indeed. And you will know the truth, and the truth will make you free. In Acts 2, they that re gladly received Peter's word were baptized. And the same day they were, there were added unto them about 3,000 souls, and they continued steadfastly in the apostles' doctrine and fellowship, and in breaking of bread, and in prayers. Do you, re do you gladly receive the word this morning? Are you glad to be here? Have you entered into the gates with thanksgiving, as the psalmist talks about, even if we had no water? Or are you like the Israelites in the prophet's day that said, when will the Sabbath end, that we can get back to selling corn and, and all the things that we like to do? Which one describes us this morning? 1 Thessalonians 2, For this cause also thank we God without ceasing, because when ye receive the word of God, which you heard, you received it not as the word of men, but as it is in truth, the word of God, which effectually worketh also in you that believe. Now that term, effectually worketh, has the idea that it is the essence of energy for you. Now let's think about this a little bit. What is the energy in any, any one of these cars out here in the parking lot? Well, the energy, you would have to say, it derives its energy from the gasoline that you put into the tank. If I brought up a, a can of gasoline here this morning, um, you, you would be unimpressed. I mean, what, what good's it going to do me? It's just a can of gasoline. But if I take the gasoline and I pour it into the, into the vehicle, suddenly I have energy that I can actually perform something. I can do something. I can get the family back home. Where, where I, can, I can do what I want to do. That's what the Word of God is. If we take in that word of God, we receive energy from it, and it puts out something in our lives. That is where it's at. All right. 
The faith of Jesus will bring suffering to those who embrace it. And I won't linger long on this one. I talked about this several weeks ago. The verse 14, I have given them thy word, and the world had hated them because they are not of the world, even as I am not of the world. And Matthew 5 says, Blessed are ye when men shall revalue you, persecute you, and say all manner of evil against you falsely. 1 Timothy 3.12, Yea, and all that will live godly in Christ Jesus will suffer persecution. Again, um, we live in times when this persecution is somewhat veiled and more subtle. And Satan is more in, uh, in line with presenting himself as an angel of life, light. But um, as I mentioned um, a few weeks ago, history would tell us that any time of peace is always followed by a time of persecution. So let's not, let's not allow the, these times to soften us, but let's rather use these times to, uh, to uh, strengthen ourselves. Another one, the embracers of the faith will be a witness to the world. Verse 21, that they may be one as, as thou, Father, art in me and I in thee, that they, may, that they also may be one in us, and that the world may believe that thou hast sent me. And Peter, in 1 Peter 3, admonishes us to always be ready to give an answer to those who ask of us of the reason, of the hope. In Acts 11, it says, And it came to pass that a whole year they assembled themselves with the church and taught much people. And the disciples were first called Christians in Antioch. So I ask you, do you and I have a burden for the lost? Do we have a burden for our families? Are we okay with doing um, numerical um, calculations? It's interesting to me that demographers... Um, have estimated that at the turn of the 20th century in 1900, the Mennonite church was roughly only 10% of what it could have been. 10%. Now, there was, there's reasons that that perhaps happened, but that is an astoundingly low number, astoundingly low. Are we okay with doing arithmetic and saying, well, you know, two-thirds, whatever, um, I'm okay with, um, with um, you know, something better than 10%. Or does it burden us when we see people that are lost and don't seemingly care? Think about that. And the last one I have here is, the faith of Jesus will express God's kingdom as physically peaceful, but spiritually engaged. Verse 15, I pray not that thou shouldest take them out of the world, that thou shouldest keep them from the evil. And it certainly gives us overtones here of the inevitable tension between good and evil. Verse 26, And I have declared unto them thy name, and will declare it, that the love wherewith thou hast loved me may be in them, and I in them. So how does Jesus love? It says Jesus loves everyone. We know the familiar verse, How God so loved the world that he gave his only son. Ephesians 6, For we wrestle not against flesh and blood, but against principalities, powers, against the rulers of the darkness of the world, against spiritual wickedness and high places. 
And 1 Timothy 6 says this, Fight the good fight of faith. Lay hold on eternal life, whereunto thou art called, and hast professed a good profession before many witnesses. There's several things I get out of that verse. Remember that the fight we're in is a good one. It is worthwhile. It's a fight that is worthwhile joining. The fight will eventually deliver eternal life. You and I are all called to this fight, and it is our profession. Now, I know that the King James um, translate the word profession, that we would probably interject the word confession in our modern language, but I sort of like the word profession. We should be professional spiritual soldiers, should we not? We should study spiritual warfare. We should hang out with other soldiers. We should practice it. We should make it our profession. And last of all, everybody should know we're soldiers. Everyone. Here in Timothy, Paul says, you have professed a good profession before many witnesses. If anybody asks about Timothy, they'd say, yeah, he's a, he is. He's a soldier of the king. He is, a, he is that spiritual soldier. That's what he was known for. You know, armies of the world want to run an offensive campaign. Nobody wants to be on the defensive. We want to be on the offensive, right? Chess players want to be on the offensive. You don't want to be playing. You don't want to be the guy that's in the corner. You want to be the guy that's putting the other one in the corner, right? Same way with us. Let's make sure we are on the offensive in this battle that we're engaged in. In Revelation 14. 12, it says this. It says, Here is the patience of the saints. Here are they that keep the commandments of God and the faith of Jesus. Another translation puts it like this. Here is a call for the endurance of the saints, those who keep the commandments of God and the faith of Jesus. And so, I beg you this morning, Keep the faith of Jesus. Let's do that. We've looked at it this morning. We've looked at somewhat what defines the faith of Jesus. And I think every one of us in these benches this morning do indeed have a longing to keep that faith. So I'd like to encourage us. Let's do that. Because after all, that is the way to uh, eternal life.